from St. Mark's Gospel, and Jesus said, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, hello, everybody. I say good morning every time. I thought I would change it up a little bit today. Um, Today is the first Sunday of Advent, which comes, if you don't know, from the Latin word Adventus, which means to wait for or to expect. But here's the question for you this morning to my sharp, church-minded friends. What exactly are we waiting for? (laughs) I mean, the birth of Jesus? That already happened 2023-ish years ago, roughly. Advent, our season of waiting, isn't about baby Jesus away in a manger. It's not the Christmas pregame. A lot of churches do it that way. But if you look at history and how the Anglican Communion has always done it, Advent is not about Jesus' first coming away in a manger and sugar plums dancing in his head and so forth. Advent is not about Jesus' first coming, but his second coming. Not away in a manger, but on clouds descending with power and great glory. Advent is about the end of the world. Woo! Merry Christmas. Well, the reason I say it that way is because it actually makes a very drastic point. Does talking about the end of the world make you fearful or joyful? It may sound like a funny question. It's not. Does the end of the world fill you with fear and dread and worry? Or does it make you feel joyful? Is the end of the world something to avoid or something to wait for with the eagerness of a five-year-old boy waiting for his dad to come home from a business trip? The end of the world When Jesus comes with power and great glory, here's the question. Is it in fact the end, or is it just the beginning? Amen. So we're going to look at three points this morning. First, that creation has fallen, that creation will be fixed, and finally, Jesus is charged to us to keep awake. The creation has fallen, that creation will be fixed, and that we are called to stay awake. So first thing, before we can answer the question about the end of the world, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? The first thing we need to do is look at this world. In our gospel today, Jesus paints a very dramatic and intentionally dramatic picture of the end of the world. He says this, now there will be signs in the sun. That sign sign is the word miracle, if you will, in Greek. The moon and the stars and the earth distress among the nations. In other words, everything blows up. Everything falls apart. What is it? I don't know. Nuclear war? Asteroid named Herbie? I don't know. But no matter what it is that takes us out, no matter what it is that finally puts the end date on the human race, we don't know what that is, but we can all agree on one thing, and that we are definitely, as a species and a culture, moving in a downward direction. Yeah, of course, we've got iPhones, and we've got Netflix, and Grubhub, whatever that is. I don't really know what Grubhub is, but I see it on my credit card, so somebody in my family knows what Grubhub is. <laughs> but honestly, you know, think about it. Culturally, we are a mess. 
We have been a mess since the fall, and it's getting worse. So that's my first point that I want to, we're going to talk about the end of the world. Good thing or bad thing? Something to fear or something to be joyful over? The first thing we need to see, point one, is that creation, our world right now, is fallen. See, here's the thing you need to realize about Jesus. Lots of things. But Jesus Christ is the consummate realist. He is warning and encouraging us today to be ready. Be ready. Get ready. Stay frosty, my friends. And the reason is because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Let me ask you a diagnostic rhetorical question, sort of rhetorical. Here it is. Do you ever notice that things are never quite as good as we think they should be? Just, it's not just me. It's everybody. Everybody has an innate sense in their mind, in their heart, in their spirit, in their soul, that things should be better. You ever notice that? You ever notice that things should be better? Even commies and atheists and university professors, sometimes all the same person. Not always. <laughs> I'm just picking. Everybody agrees. Everybody agrees. Believer, non-believer, secular, non-secular, socialists, commies, capitalists, we all believe that things should be better. And in fact, every ism, ISM, Communism, capitalism, socialism, whatever it is. Listen, at the end of the day, all of these isms are our attempt to put the genie back in the bottle on our terms, to undo the fall, to fix what we all know is broken, to fix what we all know is broken, you see, on our terms. The danger, of course, with some of these isms is when you get rid of God, it becomes about power. Fixing the problems of the world by any means necessary. Ask Pol Pot or Stalin. I mean, these days, everybody's got a gripe, right? It and it takes a clever politician to take this reality of our own sense of discontent, our own realization the world is not right. It takes a good politician to take that and weaponize it against others. That the cause of your problem is Israel or Hamas or MAGA, or whatever. And the reason these things are so effective, you see, the reason why these point the fingers and blames are so effective is they're tapping into the sense of injustice, the sense of malaise, the sense of discontent. It's because this discontent is real, and we all know it. The world is not the way it is supposed to be. And we, we say that to ourselves and we're right. Everybody knows the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know why we all know that? I'll tell you why. Your secular friends don't know why. Commies don't know why. Socialists don't know why. Even hardcore capitalists, atheistic capitalists don't know why. We all have this sense that, something, that things should be better. But we have a sense. We know why. You know why? I'll tell you why. Here's why. <laughs> because we were created for Eden. We were created for Eden. The world, friends, is not the way that God made it. The world is not made it initially. The world is not the way that God intended. This world is not the way it is supposed to be. I'll give you an example. You know, for lots of people, this time of the year is a, a season of joy, right? Even though it's a little strange being 85 degrees on December the 2nd, I'll admit, but... 
we're getting ready for Christmas and family coming by and all these sorts of things, and they're all good things. And for a lot of people, they're real times of excitement. But for some people, the holiday season is really not that great, right? A lot of people, widows and widowers and people that are wrestling with all sorts of family dysfunction or illness or whatever, fill in the blank. Sometimes this time of the year is really hard for people. You know why? I'll tell you why. Here's why. Because we live in a fallen world. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. I'll make it even more personal. Uh, Every person in this room right now is struggling with something in their personal life. We pretend we're not, but we all are. It may be big, it may be small. But every person in this, in this room right now, including yours truly, has things going on that, that are either to them or someone close to them that they love. As I say all the time, everybody's got something. In fact, this past summer, I had sabbatical, many of you know. I read a lot of books and did a lot of fun things. Um, but one, I think of, the, of all the eight weeks I took off of work, which wasn't easy, I'll admit, sometimes. Uh, but one thing I came across, I was listening to a podcast by Jordan Peterson. I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. And his guest, I don't know who it was, but his guest said something, and I will never forget this, and I'm going to give it to you this morning. His guest said the following, never forget that every person you meet is fighting a battle you cannot see. Never forget that every person you meet is fighting a battle that you cannot see. Know why? We live in a fallen world. I'll give you an example from my own heart, my own life. This past week, I found out my own mother, who lives in Pensacola Beach, some of you have met her, she's having her license revoked because she's showing signs of dementia. She doesn't know who ratted on her, doesn't know how anybody knows about it, but she's having her, her, uh, her license revoked. And it's, that's a hard pill to swallow. Maybe it's happened to some of you, or you know someone it happened to. It's not easy. She's a strong woman. She's got a great sense of humor. And she kind of made a crack about how now her family gets to cart her around now as payback for all those years when we were little. But it's true, you know? I mean, everybody's got something. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because we live in a fallen world. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. But, this is my second point, Jesus will fix it. Look closely again at this world, at this description at the end of the world that Jesus points, paints out. He says, the sun will be darkened, the heavens shaken, the stars will fall from the sky, and they will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. That word for power is a cool word. It's a Greek word. I mean, all these, these are all Greek, English translations of Greek. The New Testament's written in Greek, if you don't know that. That word power, what does it mean? It's a Greek word, dunamis. And it means like, uh, it's like dynamite. That's, what it, that's where dynamite comes from, dunamis. What do you do with dynamite? You blow stuff up, right? I would. If I had dynamite, I'd blow something up. And so would you. That's why you have it. What do you do with dynamite? You blow something up. Well, why do you blow something up? To put something better in its place. Dunamis means not just destruction for its own sake, but destruction of something Listen, in order to create something better. Dunamis, with power and great glory, is a destructive force. It's also a creative force. And that's the key to the whole question about Jesus' second coming. Something to fear or something to long for. Jesus' power destroys the old, broken, this broken order, but it creates a new one. 
Imagine the scene, right? Let's go back to his, his, his description again. The sun falling from the sky, you know, all these different things. People will be terrified. People will be scared. People will be fearful, cowering. What, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? But Luke, Luke has a little detail, which Mark omits, but I'm going to give it to you this morning. Luke says, in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, verse 28, Luke says this. Jesus says, now, when these things begin to take place, the destruction, everything begins to, the bottom falls out, right? The zombie apocalypse, whatever it happens to be that takes us down. Whenever these things begin to take place, Jesus says, listen to this. He says, straighten up and raise your heads. <laughs> because your redemption is drawing near. I love that. In our gospel, Jesus is saying, look, straighten up. For the believer, even though the world is falling apart, straighten up. It's a Greek word, it's a hard one, anakupto. And it means to lift up your head and look up. Take your eyes off the immediate problem and take a hold of the big picture. It means to stand when the world is crashing. Stand with confidence, stand with fearlessness. As the Marine would say, eyes front, right? Stay focused on what lies ahead. Thank you, Jesus. Let me give you an example. Anybody here ever drive a boat? I used to have a boat. I don't anymore. You know the old line about the best thing about having a boat is the day you get it and the day you get rid of it? It's true. But I did learn how to drive a boat, and one thing you don't do when you steer a boat is you don't steer with what's directly in front of you. A car is kind of the same thing, but a boat is even more salient because they drift, right? It's water you're on. And so when you drive a boat, you don't drive a boat like this, looking down what's in front of you. You drive a boat by finding a landmark and aiming for it, right? That's the idea here. When you lift up your head, you come out of the circumstances of this broken, fallen world, and you lift up your head. Jesus says, when I return, when the world cowers, you lift up your head, stand up, because I'm here to save you. That's the idea. Jesus says, look, when I come, I'm paraphrasing, when I come to judge the world, I'm going to bring my armies of angels with me, Jesus says, so stand up, and I will set the world to right. I will fix the world's problems. The dead shall be raised and he will reign as king. So let me ask you a question. Bring it back down to practicality. Where, where in your life are you struggling with something right now? I'll, no matter what it is, I'll tell you why you're struggling with it. It's because you're struggling with the immediate circumstances of your life. We all do this. Money problems, kids, grandkids, health issues, marriage issues. It's probably somewhere in that stew. Um, but the reason we fall into these problems, they, they consume us, and they tear us down. They bend us over. They, they, they make us focus on the immediate. It's because we're worried about them. We stay stuck in these problems we have in our lives. Jesus says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. When I come back, I'm gonna, you're going to stand up, and you're going to raise your head because I'm going to save you. John 16, 33, Jesus says, <laughs> I love this. This is a good bumper sticker quote. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, you will. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. That means to be strong, Jesus says. I have overcome it. So the world's fallen, right? Is the, is the, is the, coming, is the second coming of Jesus, the destruction of the world, a thing to be feared or a thing to long for? Well, the current world is, is fallen. Jesus is coming back to fix it. 
And so as a result, he says, stay awake. Three times he says it. And as we come to the closing of the sermon, I'm going to say, stay awake. How's that? Another thing, that Greek word there, this, why it's this idea of stay awake. Three times he says it in the gospel. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. It, it almost, it's almost anxiety producing, right? It's almost like someone who's always got like a, those boat horns. Like, you know, after a while, it just sort of, it, it kind of makes you frazzled. It makes you on edge. But the Greek word there is actually a really important word. It's a, it's a subtle word. On the one hand, stay awake, it does mean, it does mean a gut check. It does mean, and we're going to talk about this next week with our friend John the Baptist in more detail. But on the one hand, when Jesus says, I'm coming back, so get ready, be awake, it does mean, look, be aware of the things in your heart that need fixing. Be aware of the besetting sins that you commit that you struggle against. Be aware of these things you need to fix in your life that you have not done so. You've tried to hide from him. Admit them and bring them to the cross. And if you don't know what those things are, and you do, but if you refuse to know what they are, then ask your husband or ask your wife or ask a friend or someone who knows you because they all know what your besetting sins are. And Jesus says, look, it's time for you. If, you're, if, I, if the world is coming to an end and I could be there at any moment, You've got to do some soul searching. But I'm willing to bet that these things are not just things which you want to change to have a, live a happier life. They're things you need to change to get ready for Christ's return. Jesus' return, he says, is imminent. I could, he could return. He could return before this sermon is over. And I'm not going to go that long. Don't worry. He could return at any moment. And, while, and, I, and I will say this, and while I do not know when he will return, and any preacher who tells you they know is a liar or a fake, because nobody knows. And the reason we want to know is because we want to control it. But nobody knows when he will return. I don't know, and you don't either. But I do know one thing with 100% certainty. You ready for this? This I do know, that you and I will meet Jesus in our lifetime, period. I don't know when he's coming back. Could be thousands of years from now, but I do know this. I'll be 55 in two weeks. My clock's running out. And I do know that when I, when I, when I am dead, I will meet him. It's not a matter of if, but when. So do not think of the second coming of Christ as some far off maybe thing that you can put away for another day. Oh no. Jesus says, watch yourself. Be aware. Be vigilant. Stay frosty. That's the first idea of keep awake. But there's another sense of the word, which I never didn't know until this past week that I'm going to share with you. To watch for him, to keep awake, it's this. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain it by way of illustration. So keep awake is this internal check, but it's also a sense of watching for him. I'll give you an example. When I was a little boy, I was probably five or six years old, my dad used to work for a Smith Klein. Smith Klein Company. He was a big muckety muck in Smith Klein. And at one point, he was going on a trip to the Netherlands. I've never been to the Netherlands. And when I was a little kid, I didn't even know what that was. I did know he was going on KLM Airlines. I thought, well, Dad, whose initials are that? Said, no, no, it's the airline. But, uh, but I remember he had been gone for like 10 days, which was a long trip for him. And my mom said, hey, your dad's coming home tonight. What time, Mom? I don't know, 10 o'clock. So I stayed awake. And I'll never forget this. I will never forget. Sitting on my bed was right by the window there. I remember kneeling on my bed, looking out the window, 
watching for him until he came home, waiting for him. That's the other sense of keep awake here. It's not just watch it, look out, be careful. It's not just that. It's also wait for me, I'm coming back to get you. Be excited, be ready. Stand up and wait. Friends, Advent is a time to take stock of our own lives, where we are. It's a, use it. A few times in our lives does the church remind us to take stock of where we are and what we're waiting for. Take stock of our lives and ask ourselves the question, are we ready? Am I ready? And more importantly, am, am I excited for Jesus' return? Here's the question I'm going to leave you with today. Do we live, how do you, is Christ's coming something to be feared or something to be joyful? Well, the answer is simply this. Do we live for this world or do we live for the world to come? Do we fear his return or do we long, do we long for it? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you For this day, we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon our time here today. We thank you for Jesus, the consummate realist, the consummate straight shooter. Lord, help us to realize this world has fallen, but you have promised us you will come back to to restore it, to save us, and to put the world to rights. Help us, Lord, to live in this world, but not of it, as we wait for his return. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.